Yeah, so after gallivanting around the world on cruise ships and exploring all the different wine regions, um, he basically now just spends other people's money and stock sellers for them, obviously in like a concierge consultant type role and is, you know, uh, really involved with these families. But yeah, it's kind of a dream wine job to get to buy wine that you think is interesting for other people on other, on their on their dime. So. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Our interviewee today on The Vint Podcast is Wayne Baxendale, who is a wine concierge and personal seller manager. Um, he calls himself the wine hospitalian. So we have a great conversation with him today. Um, as we are actually now recording this episode before the new year, but we'll be releasing after the new year. So I hope all of our listeners had um, a great new year, got to drink some good wine with friends and family. Um, I certainly am planning to and now um, have and hopefully have survived um, the new year uh, <laughs> festivities with family. Um, it gets less and less. I remember back um, in you know early college, late in high school, um, we used to weigh our skulls on New Year's. That was like a, a, a tradition that we had. We would lay our heads down on a a scale, like a bathroom scale, and weird. weigh our heads. Um, and obviously, like you can't it's like weigh some weird Rudyard Kipling thing. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Um, but we had a good time of like all thirty of us at this party, like you know, ranking each other based on the weight of your skull on the bathroom scale. Um, we've evolved from that and now we drink champagne and, and wash the ball drop and go to bed. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I was little, we used to go, we had family friends we'd spend every year with and my, my mom and dad would always get us the sparkling apple cider, which was great. So I've been popping <laughs> bottles since I was little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember actually the very first wine, it might've been the first like alcohol that I ever had, um, was, some kind of sparkling something on New Year's. I'm sure it wasn't champagne because it was at like my girlfriend at the time's parents' house. And I just know they don't drink champagne. Um, but I remember thinking it was so terrible, this like <laughs> sparkling wine. Um, and now, you know, sparkling wines are some of my favorite. And I think every wine enthusiast or aficionado is, uh, would, would say that, uh, you know, sparkling wines and champagne are some of their favorites. So um, things have come full circle. New Year's have evolved. Wine preferences have evolved. Um, there are, like I said, our guest, Wayne, is has a really interesting career in helping families and uh, both higher net worth individuals and just, you know, um, uh, lay folks like you and I acquire wines for their seller and their personal collections. Um, I think we'll have a really cool conversation with him to share with you all, uh, diving a little bit more into the uh, you know, a, a side of the wine business that we haven't touched on, I don't think yet. And it's kind of this personal consulting side. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think a lot about merchants and distributors and wine shop owners, but there is also um, kind of a concierge uh, level side where folks who have uh, maybe larger sellers um, employ someone to help them keep it stocked and, and to acquire really cool and interesting things. So mm -hmm. uh, Wayne will share a lot and um, Definitely has me wanting to, as aspiring to that. That feels like the upper, uh, like the end game if you're in the wine business of where you want to get to. Yeah. Now, something I like about him too is he's the old school, you know, he learned boots on the ground, traveling the world on these cruise mm -hmm. ships and also just tasting a ton of wines. I think 
a lot of people forget. Now everybody asks you what your qualifications are. Um, I remember when I first passed my sommelier exam, when I was still working in advertising, they're like, oh, so you're, you know, we'd be out with friends who actually work in the industry. And they'd be like, oh, you guys are both sommeliers. It's like, well, no, he's actually a sommelier because mm-hmm. he <laughs> right. serves people wines and does it daily. Yeah. I just passed an exam. Um, but with the phenomenon of, you know, the movie Psalm and everything, everybody thinks you need these certifications to be an expert when back in the day, everybody used to, you know, they were like, well, what do you mean? Like just move down to experience years in the industry and tasting a bunch of wine. So it's cool to meet like an old school guy who, you know, he's, he's not old, but you know, he's done it the traditional way. And he's really, you know, built his client base by pure expertise and, and knowledge. So yeah, it was yeah. really interesting to kind of chat with him more about that. And the network effects and the stories and stuff, you know, being a, he, basically, I think his approach is just uh, share great wine with people with like a story behind it. And, you know, the kind of the sky's the limit in terms of what you can help people explore when they're open to, you know, just the story and, and the culture of it all. And I think he has enough experience to be able to bring all of that together for clients. Nice. So before we get into Wayne, though, do you want to let's share like one or two or maybe three things that you're just looking forward to high level for vent in 2023. Yeah, I think, you know, some of the things that we've talked about a lot with our investors um, is improving our portfolio page and the experience that investors have on the platform when they're viewing their assets and stuff. And we have a lot of changes uh, coming to the platform in the first half of the year that I think will make just our investors experience on the platform um, and understanding their portfolios uh, a lot better. I think that's yeah. like something that I'm excited about for for our investors and then just for us as a team. Um, I think continuing to to scale our capabilities as a team, um, just in terms of hiring new folks and um, uh, as you, we mature as a business, we also you know are able to uh, get more efficient and automate more processes, and that both makes our lives easier, but also allows us to be able to um, give back some of that time to investors and, and help make our investors' experience better. And so. Obviously, from my side of the business, that's always going to be a win. And those are things I think we'll accomplish in this this coming year. Oh, yeah. On the wine side, too, efficiency and just additional depth um, of information. We What's been really interesting is now that we've run our number of collections, um, we've also employed some, some different forms of technology to really allow us to create some more proprietary views on the wine market and kind of create some some of our own perspectives on how to um, more efficiently buy for our investors to maximize potential um, outcomes. So it's really exciting. I'm, I'm excited to kind of, we, we've laid a lot of the groundwork at the end of this year, and I'm excited to really deploy that next year. Um, and to your point on the team, um, I'm always excited, even if I've gotten to speak to people over Slack or, you know, Zoom, um, we're adding people all the time. So I'm excited to get to meet, you know, everybody who's joined since we last all got together. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, that'll be really exciting sometime this winter. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, there's, to your point, product updates. I mean, for me, it's always kind of a, a surprise. You're a little more in the loop with those guys, but um, yeah, it's going to be a big year, 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're thinking more about ways that, Maybe we can get in front of our investors face to face in 2023. Mm. Um, you know, it's been uh, we we did a little bit of that last year. Um, it was actually a touch of a challenge. If you remember this time last year, COVID was spiking a little bit in certain mm-hmm. cities um, still, and so I think you know 2023 will be the first full year of um, uh, you know relative normalcy in terms of how we're able to to get out and about with people face to face and. 
Um, so yeah, we're excited to hopefully visit a few of you in, in some of the big cities around the country this year. And, um, it'd be cool to get some of the event community together. Nice. Well, I think being able to host people for events and hospitality is a good segue into our interview with Wayne Baxendall. So here he is. Enjoy. Hi, Wayne. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to have you on. Uh, thank you for having me, guys. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we. I mean, I think this is a really special opportunity for our listeners just to get to hear someone uh, from the wine industry, uh, from a sector of the wine industry that we don't really talk too often about. And that's maybe this like kind of boutique wine concierge, uh, like private psalm sort of role. Do you want to describe a little bit for our guests um, or our listeners what you what you do day to day? Uh, so day to day, I have um, a number of clients. Um, I offer basically what is a boutique uh, private seller management service. Um, so what we do is we offer um, discrete deliveries to the door um, with uh, some of the clients that we do have. Um, they prefer that type of delivery. Um, so it's just a case of keeping, um, you know, keeping it discreet, keeping it personal, uh, but on the same time, uh, having a seller management um, tends to kind of flow in a few different ways. But what we like to try and do is offer literally boutique uh, wines that A, probably they've never heard of before. Therefore, we offer private tastings for our clients. Mm-hmm. And, but more importantly, it's private tastings where we can build a, a, a massive rapport with our customers. And one of the things that I pride myself in is you know, being the wine hospitality and hospitality that I've, I've coined um, is just offering that really unique private management company, but at the same time having the hospitality, which people, I think, you know, it tends to have gotten lost in our industry. And one of the things I like mm-hmm. to do is just bring that to the forefront of the customers who we have on our profile. When you, you know, say that, hospi- sorry, Billy, when you say the hospitality yeah. is lost, do you mean that uh, in the sense of um, like direct to consumer wine retail, because obviously, you know, we have high end restaurants in the hospitality there. Or can you describe what you mean by hospitality is lost? So I would say over, um, I would probably say over the past 10 years um, within the wine industry, especially on the forefront of fine dining or, you know, Michelin star restaurants or anything, you know, around that caliber, it tends to be a lot about the food and a lot about, you know, a a finely curated wine list. But I I sometimes feel that when you go to some of these places that the hospitality is lost. Mm. Uh, And I know we've spoke, Brad, previously about a gentleman called Bobby Stuckey, who, you know, absolutely dominates the industry. And what I wanted to do was to try and have that feel where you can have that bespoke approach to wine and really good hospitality. And I think hospitality can go in a couple of different directions, whether it is fine dining, which everybody loves. Don't get me wrong. I love it as well. But it's that nice, homely feeling where you walk into a restaurant and it's not, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, please, ma'am, no, Mm -hmm. ma'am. It's having that warming feeling, which I think is kind of lost its way a little bit. And this is just my personal opinion. Um, But to to, to bring that back and to make people feel like, you know, the walking into into your house, basically, you know, it's a chat amongst friends rather than a paying client. And I think that is kind of lost a little bit. And it's something that I've I, I, I do quite well and you know i i think hopefully and most of my customers customers will feel the same way is it's having that very nice 
mutual connection that doesn't feel too orchestrated, mm-hmm. which I feel fine dining and, you know, Michelin style restaurants kind of are, but there's some people who are doing it really, really well. Right. So I was going to, I'm, I'm happy you guys talked about Bobby Sucky. I mean, Brady, one of Brady's favorites, but he's a great example of really high quality wine experience, but like teaching people about different regions, like Friuli with his passion. And like, I, I love that type of thing as well. Um, but speaking of kind of different regions, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, about how you got to travel so much and kind of develop Ooh. these hospitality <laughs> chops? And yeah, and that's, as short that's as that's you a, can. It's a long conversation, but I'll keep it as short <laughs> as I can. Um, so I've had the pleasure of um, traveling the world probably uh, in its entirety, um, you know, from start to finish, uh, probably about four times. Uh, wow. I worked on cruise ships, so there's not many places I haven't been in terms of, um, you know, specific wine regions. But if you think of Georgia, which is, you know, the home of wine, if you mm-hmm. if you will, in the Black Sea, right. um, throughout all of Europe um, to Iceland, um, you know, all the way over. I've actually been to um, all the Fijian islands, um, uh, over to New Zealand, Australia. So I've had the pleasure of being in these locations and drinking wine in their birthplace. And I've always, I always coined the phrase, I'll, I'll probably say this a few times, where um, there's no better experience than tasting wine in the place that it was actually born in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of people will probably agree with me, where if you go to, for argument's sake, Bordeaux and go to a chateau in Bordeaux and have that experience then right. that is something you just can't replicate in a restaurant. So it's nice to, to, to have the privilege of, you know, being in Bordeaux and tasting wines in Bordeaux, tasting a Gilong Pinot in Gilong, you know, having um, a mm-hmm. Yarra Valley Shiraz or, you know, I, I could go on, but, right. you know, having a Rioja, a Rioja in Rioja or so on and so forth, you know. So I've had the pleasure of doing that. And, and one of the things that we did when we traveled a lot was, we always made the attempt of eating as local as we possibly could and drinking as local as we possibly could. That does include wine, obviously, um, but that goes for, you know, local beers, local spirits. So there aren't many places that I, you know, that I haven't touched where I wouldn't say, oh, I've been there and, you know, not have the experience of it. So I have that really rounded experience of being in Bordeaux, being in Italy, being in Spain, being in Portugal, and just having the pleasure of, tasting wines from these regions and all i want to do is just share that you know love and passion of travel with wine and just bring it to the people who basically want to ask about it but but california has emerged for you right as a as kind of a favorite destination i which which i which i like (laughs) because um you know i i kind of tout you know for us here in the states like we should embrace more so uh you know napa and sonoma and obviously oregon and, and washington state uh, instead of getting, oh, I, you know, we, we've uh, moved beyond that. Now I drink Burgundy. Uh, I think that there should be a little bit more regional pride. So what, what made it such I, that in your travels, you kind of settled on with your clients, like, you know, so, Napa. so when I, um, when I had the pleasure of um, traveling the goal and working on cruise ships, as I say, um, I was uh, offered an opportunity to then move to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, on, uh, along the travels, I met some very good friends of mine, Andrew Maeve Smith, 
Um, and they now work in and were born in, uh, well, Maeve was actually born in just south of San Francisco, a place called Half Moon Bay. I'm pretty much mm-hmm. sure everybody's familiar with it. Um, so we traveled a lot out there to, to go and visit our friends. So <clears throat> having the love of wine um, and them living in California, it was like, no brainer, let's go, let's get out there. So every waking moment of, uh, you know, a vacation that we had was spent in California. Now, mm. when I was um, living in um, Florida, they came over to see me. I went over there. And then obviously, one of the things you've got to do in Napa is go and visit Napa because they live in Sonoma now. Mm. So I, we made an attempt of every time we were there, it was like, right, how many wineries are we going to? What can we squeeze in? Whether it's you know, traveling over the Mayacamas Mountain Range into Napa or just traveling up the valleys and seeing what we could do. So I really fell in love with California as a region because it's very much like England calling home. It has its seasons, you know, Florida doesn't. It's hot as hell all the time. Um, <laughs> so we, we really enjoyed our time in California and I probably just fell in love with it, with it being similar to home. But living, you know, a true American lifestyle, which we did for 10 years because we lived in Florida. So one of the things that um, I did with my time uh, when we were in Florida was I donated my time to a place called Wine Watch. Um, we'll elaborate more on it as we go into the, into the cast. But um, one of the things that they had was a 30,000 bottle cellar, um, which, uh, you know, we took full care of. And a lot of the things that um, they did in Florida was drank a lot of California wine. So we really did drive, you know, having friends in Napa and working in um, a wine shop that, you know, had a lot of focus on Napa all over, all over the world. But that's probably where it really drove home for me that I just fell in love with it and just fell in love with California wine. Yeah, that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. And again, to your point, being able to go see it I definitely gained a deeper appreciation for both Napa and Sonoma. Um, once I moved to California, I was able to go up there. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah, Brady is our our Napa and California stand. I'm in California, but I feel like I'm the European stand, which is kind of funny. So I, I look the <laughs> other way. But um, with, along those different learnings, how, how do you try to incorporate one, like the sense of being somewhere to your your experiences with your clients and then how has the hospitality that you've seen in different parts of the world? Have you have you taken little pieces of hospitality that you try to incorporate back home now? Um, Absolutely. Your- so one of the things I I, I do um, talk about a lot of my clients is my travels, and you know when you've when you've uh, been to let's say Venice at eight o'clock at night is completely different space than it is at you know ten o'clock in the morning when it's you know the hustle and bustle of uh, the tourism. But when you do find those and uh, those little pockets of little places like, you know, Portofino or Malfi, Sorrento, Rome, Florence, that's just, just Italy. We've not even touched anywhere or any other country. But when you find those little things that make a difference and the hospitality in these in these countries that I've experienced mm-hmm. are just so warming, they're not like your typical touristy spots, right. which is one of the reasons I probably fell in, whether it's my English accent being in California or not, um, is I found it, found it very warming. So one of the things that I always talk about is how warm in a country is and what the hospitality is like. And when I do a wine tasting and for argument's sake, we've got a, a Spanish region is you talk about how the Spanish do it compared to how the French do it. The two different styles, two different styles of culinary cooking. 
um, two different, completely different lifestyles. You know, the, the Spanish always have a siesta. Why don't we? Why doesn't France? Why doesn't Portugal? <laughs> mm. So it's nice to combine all the experiences that I've had and, you know, and the, the wine that I tasted in that country and talk about that with my clients and say, you know, I remember when, and it's always a case of I remember when. And one of the things um, I think is very prominent when it comes down to hospitality is someone will always remember a time in their life when they had that really, really good bottle of wine. They'll always say, remember when we had that really nice bottle of wine at such a restaurant, or we remember that bottle of wine we had at such a place. That will always come back to people's memory. And if you can replicate that, there and then for that customer that's really good hospitality and that's just something that i just want to share with everybody hmm. so are there i hope that answers the question no no that was that was really good <laughs> no yeah so on that point as you're starting I, I guess aside from hospitality alone let's dive into the wines a little bit are there certain regions or certain styles that your clients are looking for are they all on the very high end are you mixing up the calibers so, I, I, with the with the seller management service that we offer and um, we do get a lot of variation i'll probably say from the top to the bottom and um, i had a client the other day who shouts me up at the last minute and says they want 24 bottles of cristal um you know and then they, they text me 10 minutes later saying can i add 12 bottles of runart on it and then they say oh have you got something different so I, I'm fortunate to have people all over the place and all over the world where I, cause I have my own importation license. So it does make it a little easier for me to get wine into the country. But I think networking as a whole, which I've you know really put my, my foot into is to have that connection with different distributors who specialize in different wines. So if they turn around and say, Oh, you know, what champagnes have you got? I'm going to say, well, instead of having, you know, some of the big names that we have, why don't you try a grower's champagne for argument's sake? Now, for those people who don't know what a grower's champagne is, it's basically a, a small producer who no longer sells the grapes to the bigger producers and decides to put their own label on the stuff. There's so many people out there who are making really good sparkling wines, champagne, let's start, let's call, um, who just don't really get the day of light. So I like to bring those people to the forefront and say, hey, you've got these big names you know, we've just reeled them off, but why don't you try something new? And then that's where the private tastings, the hospitality comes into it, where you can push um, these really small producers who are doing really good jobs and just giving them a different experience. And that, at the end of the day, it's about a sense of curiosity um, and a sense of exploration, which I like to push onto the clients and they, and it is received really well. So it can vary from high end down to the people who say, when, uh, you know, the wife loves, um, you know, Prosecco, can you get me 12 bottles of that? Sure, not a problem. And then that gets delivered to the door. So it, it is about keeping up, um, uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, as we say in England. But if your hospitality is good and, you know, you're providing something that is bespoke, you do get so many different people within that range. Is it is it most often that you get recommended or um, you get asked to, like you described, oh, you know, can I have this producer or something, you know, from this region? Or do you also get, hey, you know, I seller's getting low or I want to start my seller. Here's $10,000, uh, 15000 go and, you know, uh, yes. give me the most bang for my buck. Like, you know, get me as many bottles as you can uh, that's so, you know, reasonable in that price. 
Yeah. So the the, the first one I had a, one of one of my clients who um, basically turned around and said, "We've just moved into a brand new house. Um, they've got a, a, an unbelievable uh, wine fridge. Um, they have an upstairs bar and a cinema, and they wanted to fill that. And they basically turned around and said, "I've got X amount of money." I want some of this, I want some of that, and fill it with whatever you think. So I don't go with the usual, uh, and in mm-hmm. England, you know, Malbec um, seems to be a big a big thing at the moment, as well as, you know, the Riocas and um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for argument's sake, is another big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like to say, so here's what I've done for you. I've gone through, um, you know, for argument's sake, Croatia, um, Moldova, uh, um, Macedonia. So we've, you know, the the un- unsung wine regions of Europe that have been making wine a lot longer than we have, and a lot longer than we've been around. So I like to put those type of guys forward and say, why don't you try that instead of having your Argentinian Malbec? These guys are doing a really nice Malbec. Now you could argue argue the sake that um, in England, Argentinian Malbec is very famous over here. I was very popular per se, um, but nobody's never really heard of Cahors Malbec. Now, Cahors mm-hmm. Malbec, as we know, is you know the founder of Malbec um, and still is in Bordeaux. They still use it in Bordeaux. Not a lot of people know that because they don't understand what goes into the bottle. So for me, it's about you know going into a little bit more about what's in the bottle, why is it in the bottle, what's in a bottle of Bordeaux. You know, you've got the, fav- the, the, the five grape varieties, predominantly and just really you know turning up the heat on it and just going into a little bit more detail where the customer really does appreciate it do you have any clients who are purposely purchasing just for investment purposes or maybe they're getting two cases and always putting one aside to with the intention to resell so i'm i'm a bit i'm a strong believer of when it comes down to you know i've always uh, been asked you know, what's a good ball to put down and you can argue that there's 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 many of them that you can do. So instead of just either saying, oh, well, if you want to make an investment and if you've got that type of money to make that investment, why don't you buy two bottles, drink one and put one down? <laughs> now, a lot of them say, well, why would I do that? Why not? You know, so, yeah, the, we do get a lot of people who do say, uh, you know, what, what can I put down for the next 15 years or, you know, what can I put down for 30 years? Or um, better said, you know, what can I buy a case of that I just, don't have to think about and just leave alone for the next 30 years so we do get a lot of those questions but um i think it's a it's a case of you you have to introduce it before you can say oh why don't you just buy that is again the the hospitality side comes into it is you you can buy a bottle of tiganello well why don't we drink it together and you can make that decision and maybe try that route and i feel that way works for me and it works but works really well with my clients as well you have to keep in mind when you're purchasing for a seller, maybe maybe there is a wine that needs five years to really round out. Like maybe you're getting like, I don't know, Barolo on release and you need at least five years for it to, you know, become, at least start showing anything that it should yeah. be. Um, do you give them something that's like in between? Um, I could also think of like a Montalcino Rosso instead of just like, as you give them a Brunello from the same producer, like you kind of stagger things like that to give drinks. Yeah. Windows. Yeah. I mean, I've not had the opportunity to, uh, to do that as of yet. Um, but it's definitely something I would consider, you know, you could go for a traditional, um, you know, Bar- uh, Barolo, 
um, you know, rather than the new method, so to speak. And mm -hmm. the two different approaches, two different uses of oak. And, you know, and that, again, you could go back to the hospitality side is you could put both of those two different, you know, same region made in two different completely separate ways and let them make that decision and say, well, you know, this one's more approachable in five years. This one you won't be able to touch for the next 15 years. So it depends if, they, if they're looking for, you know, that, you know, really big initial don't want to touch it for 30 years or something that, you know, if they're going to buy a case of, then they can open a bottle and not feel too worried about it and they know it's going to be tasting absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I always, always buy two bottles just in case the always, first one tastes, tastes really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's same, same with books. You buy one to read and one to give away. Um, exactly. That's been exactly. my philosophy too. What? So how many, I mean, I don't want to linger too much on like, you know, the specifics of individual clients, but, you know, I'm imagining that most of the folks you work with have, you know, 2000 bottle, 3000 bottle sellers, or is it actually more often that it's, you know, you know someone like me who has like 150 bottle fridge sort of thing um i think that the the biggest one i've had was probably about 600 bottles okay um so nothing nothing huge and um, but it i would say the the seller is quite specific rather than you know that mm. being you know just stuff that was bought for them and they just put it down but um nothing major at the moment but you know we'll wait yeah. and see well i was trying to lead into you know what what is you know if you were talking to someone and say, Hey Wayne, you know, I just bought a wine fridge. <laughs> um, you know, it holds, it's 35 bottles, 50 bottles, something like that. And I want to stock some stuff so that when I have friends over, I can, you know, drink and have a good time and, and, and pair around and have a lot of options. Uh, what would be like, what's kind of your starting point what would be maybe, uh, like a, a three pointed framework for how you would think about someone with a, a small fridge, how they would get started. Um, well, uh... I've had the pleasure of um, running a wine bar, which is um, where uh, some of my clients came from. So I'm fortunate enough to already know their palate. So I had one the other day and it was like, you know, Wayne, I've got a, you know, Christmas, a Christmas party coming up. So I want to treat, treat the staff, um, but I want to get X, Y, and Z. Um, but then I also said, well, well, now you've just got your new wine fridge, which he just has. Um, mm -hmm. why, don't, why don't we stock that up? So it was like, oh yeah, all right then. Okay. Okay. So, on the back of that was um, some um, Polini Montreget, um, which I'm sure you're, you're, you're very familiar with. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you can, if you already know the palette, then it's easier to go down. Well, you know, if you're looking for something a little bit more, you know, with a, you know, a little bit more room, then go for, are you, do you want a warm, uh, a warm site Montreget or a cold site Montreget? Do you want a battered Montreget? And that's when you can really start turning up the noise on, on terms of that. But it also gives you the opportunity to sit down with them. Again, coming back to the hospitality side is here is a bottle of Batard Montage. Let you do the talking and see if you like that or not. And then, you know, that specific client only likes specific whites. They don't really like anything else. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I, I would probably say it's understanding your, your customer's palate um, and, you know, and if you have a price, if they give you a price in mind, that does make it a lot easier. Um, mm -hmm. But if you if you know the first one, which is understanding your client's needs and the, your, your client's palace and what they like, it does make it a lot easier. Um, but for someone who's really starting out with something like that is just do that private tasting. Uh, you know, if you wanted to start out in seller management, maybe do that and understand where, well, if you can get a bit of background, whether it's, you know, um, 
white burgundies, whether it's, um, you know, a, a white from Rioja, um, or is it something from California? You're not going to know until you really understand what the customer or your client needs. But that gives you the best opportunity to really have that really good hospitality and open up the book for them and right. just teach them something new. Again, you know, going back to the, you know, the space of exploration and, you know, the sense of curiosity. That's that for me is what I'm good at. And that's where I always started with it is understand what they need rather than what you like. And as so, some, so you're not you're, you're not thinking like, oh, push that a lot. you're not thinking 20 percent sparkling, 40 percent red, 40 percent white. That's how no, every set. Yeah, no, okay. right, right. it's that. So you, 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 I mean, you could, but if you've got, if you turn around and say, like for arguments that the, you know the last client had just dropped off, and um, they only like white, so why would I, why would I give them red? Sure, and if right, they they, yeah. they love rosé, so I got them twenty four bottles of rosé. Yeah. Um. So it's just a case of really understanding what they need rather than what you would like to push or, right. you know, have a set. I mean, you could, you could by all means, but. Um, if you really want that personalized, you know, portfolio or, you know, personalized approach, I would go with that. Looks like, looks like Billy's microphone's off. Yeah. He just went dead. Yeah. My bad. Uh, that's a, a little <laughs> touch thing. Technology Um, on the personalization side of things, you worked or have experience with both fine dining and the wine bar scene. Right. I've always been kind of, a, a firm believer that my local wine bar actually knows what I like more than a supposed fine dining thing that, you know, even if I, I've never been to this stage, but you know, they have me on like a reservation and they have like that little like list of things that he likes when he comes in. But I feel like a Psalm at a fine dining place doesn't know you nearly as well as somebody who, you know, you see a few times a month when you come in and just ask for whatever you want. What, what are your perspectives there? So, um, without shaking the tree too much, um, I've worked in, you know, the, the neighborhood, uh, the, the, you know, your local neighborhood wine bar. Um, and I do feel that you have a much more easier and, you know, I, again, we'll go back, back to the hospitality. It's a lot easier when you have that person who just comes in for that one glass of wine a week. Um, you, I think you have a much more personal connection with those people because you've actually spent more time with them. And that I feel is much stronger as a business model um, and in the wine world where that is, I think, coming back to you're walking in, the person knows the name, you, you, the favorite glass of wine's already hit the table before your bums touch the seat. That is good hospitality. Mm. I don't think, um, I don't think that is achievable in, uh, in fine dining or a Michelin star restaurant because it tends to be more about the food and the experience rather than about the wine. Right. Now, again, without shaking the tree too much, I've worked in both. And what I found that uh, Michelin star restaurants tend to stick to, um, you know, a profit margin. Obviously, everybody's in the business to make money. We know that. But it's how you approach it, I think, which is makes it a little bit more personal. Now, with fine dining and Michelin-style restaurants, as soon as you sat at the table, you, you pretty much sat there, you can't really move, and you've got a uh, quite a restricted wine list. And, you know, you by the glass is probably going to be quite limited. Out of experience, I know this to be true. Mm. Whereas you go to your neighbourhood wine, you know, your neighbourhood wine bar, and you might have the, the, the your favorite song might have something under the cellar which just came in, and it might be a mm -hmm. Trialdo Gold grape from Toronto, which you've never heard of before. 
So let's give that a go. And yeah. and that's where the, you know, the good hospitality comes into it, where they're willing to open a bowl, give you a glass to say, what do you think? Rather than what the company thinks or what they think pairs well with the food. That is very, very personal. I think that your palate is your palate. It shouldn't be predicted by, you know, a, a, a maybe let's say 10 by, uh, by the glass or, you know, whether that's white or reds. So it's the quite limited and quite limiting to the people who come through the door. Whereas your neighborhood wine bar knows exactly what you like and they're willing to just go that extra mile with you. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's actually how I had my first uh, Terrell to go back in the day. Is a, a person was just like, "Oh, hey, I, I think you would like this." Um, yeah, my, yeah, my local, exactly. and it's you know, going back to the sense of exploration and curiosity. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, my the local wine bar I have specifically in mind. They have uh, thirty or forty wines by the glass, but they don't they don't actually have a menu. You just tell them kind of what you're feeling that day. So after you go enough times the guy already gets a sense of, even if I say, you know, like a, a lean kind of funky white, he knows what I mean by funky white. I don't have to go into like further explanation. So it is kind yeah. of fun. Once you build that rapport, what you can, what you can find. Absolutely. I, I want to do a little bit of a game or put you on the spot a bit, Wayne, uh, with an exercise. Um, I, maybe Billy can jump in with a few of these too. Um, and asking you, I'm going to give you kind of a general designation for uh, you know, maybe a country or a region um, in the world. And then I want you to provide either um, a variety that you would you get really excited about uh, either drinking yourself or bringing in for a client if, you know, I'm the client, um, or even if you want to get granular name producers um, that, you know, really excite you. So if I said champagne, you might say, you know, this, this grower, uh, champagne producer, um, maybe it would be cool to do like a um, maybe a more expensive offering, like something really high end and then something more like value based, um, could, could be a fun exercise for our listeners to get some new ideas, um, about what wines to try in different regions. Let's, cool. uh, let's start with, uh, let's hear about Italy. Cause you were on Italy a little bit. Um, can you give us, uh, what narrow, the um, na- narrow it down a little bit, Brady, give them like okay, north or south or sure, sure, sure. Um, let's do, let's do, let's do north. In Piemonte, we had a Piemonte collection um, in our in our offering batch. Uh, we could spread that out to, um, oh my gosh, Lombardy as well. If you want to get a little bit more out there, we won't go all the way further west. Um, yeah, you could do. I, I see. One of the things that I always um, I always push on is if you're going to go through, like for argument's sake, if you wanted to do northern Italy. Have you heard anything from, you know, outside of Benito, like Venice area? Try something that's over there. Now, I'm a strong believer on, um, because I've had different varieties from all over the world, I'm a firm believer on not just drinking. So for argument's sake, Barolo is obviously famous for um, Nebbiolo, but there's so many different things that you can have from these different regions, whether it's a white or a red. So one of the things that I would say is, if you have a region that's really famous for Nebbiolo, Barolo, is try and argue the cases. There's something different that you can have from there, whether it's Corvine or, you know, that's one of them, like Agave, which is very popular mm-hmm. in the Piemont areas. Mm-hmm. So maybe instead of understanding a region that it's famous for, is try something that it's not famous for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be my first argument on that one. Now that makes a lot of sense. We, I, 
he brings that up. We had a collection. I was just over there and I had my buddies trying like mm-hmm. Herbaluche. Um, we, we ended up getting a Valtellina on our way back to Milan, which is like, you guys tried Barolo. Now here's a Nebbiolo from somewhere else, but yeah. I'm right with you on that. But to, to Brady's other point, let's, let's go like more out there. I, I saw you um, just wrote something. Was it on, was it on Serbian wines or was it Croatian? It was Croatian, Croatian wines. Croatian wines. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. We had a Serbian wine this weekend. It was on my mind. Um, what what are some regions kind of like, well, what like Croatia? And then what are some grapes? Like, let's start with Croatia and then maybe some that are similar where you're like, you know, this, this variety or style is really so, interesting. So Croatia is, um, I don't know, if, for those who don't know where it is, it's just off the central coast of Italy, literally across the water. So if you think of, you know, central Italy being, you know, it is quite a warmer climate. It does have its cooler spots. So, for those who don't know, um, um, Zinfandel is very famous from uh, from Croatia and is the birthplace of the Zinfandel grape. So there are a lot of grape varieties that do paddle on the back of that, but have their own, you know, unique taste and uh, to them. For argument's sake, Havar Hills, um, Pavlak uh, Mali, um, is grown on the hillside, very similar to what the Rhone Valley looks like. Um, and the, because it's so close to the ocean, it does have that freshness going on, you know, that salinity that, that you, you do get from the coastal areas. But it is a red wine, so it's it's very deep in its colour. It's got a lot of whack to it, but it's just completely different to what you would normally find, if, you know, for argument's sake, say Italy. And Croatian wines, I don't think have had the limelight just yet i do think it is a thing that is up and coming whether it's red or white um possip is another one that comes from there um it has it is very much more like a pinot noir um or like a blau frankish um mm. you probably saw uh, on my instagram or uh, otherwise um you know blau frankish is another thing that's up and coming um but those are the the, the regions and the grapes varieties that you know, people don't really necessarily go to in the supermarket or unless told they wouldn't necessarily buy. So I think that Croatian wines um, are definitely up and coming, especially in the UK, but something that just needs to be explored by pretty much everybody who enjoys wine. Just because I'm a, a Blau Frankish fan, I think I probably spent the first quarter of our podcast episodes talking about Blau Frankish at some point. <laughs> who are who are some of your favorite producers? Um uh, we'll stick to Austria for this one, the homeland. Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily. I'm a, I, I'm a big fan of, I wouldn't say uh, with regions, not necessarily producers. Mm-hmm. Um, in Austria, there's not, I don't really drink a lot of Austrian Blau Frankish, to be completely honest. Now, I had one mm-hmm. the other day from the Finger Lakes. Um, the other Blau Frankish I had was um, from Testament. And I think that was... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that was Croatian, Blau Frankish. Um, don't necessarily drink a lot of Austrian stuff. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I should drink more. Um, but no, not really had a lot from there, to be completely honest. Well, I mean, to your point, though, something I, I think that will be allowing Central European and Eastern European grape wines to kind of reassert themselves, because historically they've been very prominent, is people understanding what the grapes kind of are each country has like its own name for these grapes um i I think i was just in slovenia and it's just like trying to understand 
what ferment was called there based what's called in like Hungary versus like what a certain grape is called, you know, like Rebola Jala, for example, Rebula, Rebola Jala. It's like all of these names. Um, I think everybody's starting to be a lot more open-minded. I'd love to get your opinion on like the open-mindedness of the wine drinker now to the stories (laughs) behind the wines rather than getting caught up on the varieties themselves. Absolutely. Good question, because one of the things I always bang on about, and especially for for the English folk, I don't know um, necessarily what the trends are over in your neck of the woods, but (coughs) when you start speaking of Bordeaux, people always turn around and go, oh, I had a really nice Bordeaux, I had a really nice Chianti, or um, I've had a couple of people who turn around and say, oh, do you know what, I I don't really like um, Chardonnay, but I love Champagne. So for me, I think it's, especially when it comes down to the European style of the wine label, and I've got into many an argument with it, is a lot of them are so focused about producer and region rather than what's actually in the bottle. Now, it could say Bordeaux, Bordeaux Superior, or, you know, let Fragment say Margot. Now, if somebody picked up that who doesn't know what Margot is as a region or what goes into the bottle, how do they know what goes into it? Mm-hmm. So it does, it is a little bit, um, you have to know about wine to, to understand what you're buying, or you have to know a little bit more about, you know, what goes into a bottle of Margot. And I think that scares a lot of people because they don't necessarily know what goes into a bottle of Medoc versus to what goes in a bottle of, you know, Pemerol. Mm-hmm. So being too left bank, right bank, you know, even that, when I first started out, I was like, what's left bank, what's right bank? What the, what, it's Bordeaux, what's the difference? <laughs> and then when you start going into regions, sub-regions, Pouillac, uh, Margot, you know, Margot for me is one of my favourite regions in France. Now, when someone says, oh, what's your favourite wine? I don't necessarily have a favourite wine, I have a favourite region because of what grows in that region, not necessarily the producers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes down to, you know, going that extra mile and trying to understand a little bit more is rather than shop at, you know, your high street supermarkets, Publix or Safeway or whatever it is, there are other people you can go into shop at. Um, but if you go into your local wine shop, you're going to understand a lot more about what's in the bottle and, you know, you'll probably start to understand the the way it works rather than, you know, be a seen a promotion in a in a magazine for argument's sake. Excuse me. <coughs> so for me, I definitely think it is if the more people understand different wine regions and start asking a little bit more, or have the producers put what's on the bottle in what's on you know on the label, what's in the bottle. I think there might be a little bit more of a turning point where people go, well, I've never had or understood what's in the bottle of Bordeaux, but I love Cabernet Sauvignon or I love Merlot. You know, So if you love Merlot, you're definitely going to go for a right bank rather than a left bank. So mm-hmm. I think if consumers understood that a little bit more and the producers were a little bit more forgiving in Europe, then they would probably sell a little bit more. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's worth, it's worth, you know, worth talking about. Yeah. That's so interesting because I think it's, from the Europeans has a more obviously centuries more wine history and a developed kind of understanding of wine because the the U.S. really wine culture grew up with that variety on the label. Um, I mean, it started back in the day where they would call some wines in California Chablis or Velvet Burgundy, but all my friends have the exact opposite problem. Like people I'm trying to get into wine, they're like, if it says Chardonnay or something on the label, they're like, oh, I know what this grape tastes like because they think it tastes the same everywhere but if you put like yeah. croatia on there they'd be like oh cool i've been to croatia once like 
let me try it. So it's kind of like... Yeah, so I mean, it, the argument that I, you can always say is the Italian version of, you know, it says um, Puglia and it's a Primitivo mm-hmm. versus um, uh, Clinker Brick, Old Vines Inn. Right. <laughs> so the, the two completely... Well, I've never had a Primitivo before, so I'm going to go for the Clinker Brick, Old Vines Inn. Um, or but, I don't like Zen. I'm gonna let me try this Primitivo, and then they like it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I don't like Chardonnay, but I love Champagne. So when mm-hmm. you start really turning up the music of you know what's really in the bottle and giving that to the consumer, um, I think that's where again I'll go back to it. That's where the hospitality side comes into it. But you're making the consumer, the customer, your client, the people who are stood in front of you understand that a little bit more, and that, I think that's a little bit more warming because when I first started. In you know, in the world of wine, I never knew what Primitivo was, and I never knew what was in a bottle of Bordeaux until I actually did the research to understand what was in it. Not many people go through the lens that you know you and I go through, so they wouldn't necessarily understand that. So I think there's there's a lot of things that could be done that aren't done for for traditional reasons. Um, but I definitely think it is very much a European thing, and you guys across the pond who do it, you know, ever so ever so differently, as well as they do in Mexico. They're, they're really pushing the boundaries over there as well. I yeah, spend, I wanted to spend a little time, Billy, getting into the some of the, the side conversations that we have on the pod often um, about the emergence of English sparkling and what's going on, kind of on the Oof. coast in this in the south southeast um, up there in the UK. Tell me uh, a little bit about uh, your perspective on. English sparkling and its emergence kind of, um, it, I mean, well, hold on. Let me say that I don't, I haven't been anywhere where I could find English sparkling on the shelf here on the East coast um, in a store. Um, or at least in, in Baltimore, and, I would say it's probably easily. I mean, I York. couldn't, I could, well, yeah. Okay. So I couldn't find it in Baltimore. I couldn't find it in Richmond. Couldn't find it in the South at all. Um, I probably don't go far enough North, but uh, <laughs> A Gus Bourne, and that's you know I don't know what else is distributed. So yeah, I was just gonna I was gonna argue the case. Um, yeah, um, Neil will love me for this, but um, Gus Bourne for me is um, I had the pleasure of actually attending the harvest dinner, um, which was um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, but they're probably one of the biggest ones at the moment that are producing a lot of the you know the, 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 let's not forget they're, they're a great producer and I love their wines they're very expressive um, but a lot of people don't understand that we've been growing grapes for such a long time for you know I know one producer um, who I served and he's been, been producing wine for 25 years so it's we do have a bit of uh, you know not as big as uh, you know California or for Europe as a whole, but we have a, a little bit of history. Um, but it tends to be more of the unspoken of varietals. Rissensteins are one of the big ones. Um, obviously, we're producing Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Meunier, um, but. Uh, Gusborn is a really good producer. Um, Hattingley, uh, Hattingley Valley Wine Estate, um, they're producing some phenomenal stuff. A lot of them are doing cuvées, um, but the, now we've, get, we've had really good heat over the past couple of years. So we're, our Pinot Noir is you know, really becoming uh, into its own little characters. And it's showing really well. The 2022 vintage was phenomenal for us. High yields, very high quality. And um, but there's so many small producers who are just, you know, been making wine for the past 
I don't know, um, arguments say, let's say 12 years. You know, a lot of them started 2010, mm-hmm. 2012, when it started to become quite popular, unheard of. It was very under the market. But now they've, you know, gotten, you know, four or five vintages into the bag and they've really started to hone in on what is a very expressive style of, you know, Chardonnay and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so I think for English wine moving forward, it's going to be very, very popular. I think it will become apparent, hopefully in the next five years, um, you guys will see, see a lot more of it. But there's a lot of producers, Night Timber, Hattingley, um, Simpson, um, Davenport, who he's been making wine for 20, 20 plus years, um, and he's been doing it, um, you know, in a small little shed, <laughs> in a small little shed, and a lot of them are. One of my favourites is, um, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of this. You may have heard of it. It's a, a very popular grape in England called Bacchus. Mm. Um, now, Bacchus named after the gods, obviously. <coughs> um, the, a very small producer called Hidden Springs. Now, they those guys have a very small patch of land. I've been there a couple of times. And all they do is a uh, Bacchus and a Bacchus Fume, and they do a Chardonnay. Um, now, it was there uh, maybe four months ago, um, and the, uh, I, I, now I have one reserve, 2018 Bacchus. They, they, you can't buy it. It's, you, can, you cannot buy it. I've got one bottle left. And for the sake, for the love of me, I don't want to open it, but I do because it's delicious. <coughs> but the, there's the, the, a bunch of really small guys doing really good jobs over here, and it's... It'll be, you know, probably two or three years. I think it'll be a lot more popular. Hopefully, fingers crossed. So, I, I've never actually heard of Bacchus. So I, I just looked it up. So it's bred <coughs> from a Sylvaner Riesling cross and Muller Turgau. It's an interesting combo. What does it taste like? <coughs> um, think of um, fresh, bright green apples. Um, gooseberry is a lot of the ones that coin in. Uh, the phrase over here in England. So it's mm-hmm. a very gooseberry, fresh um, lemon cut grass, bright green apples, almost like a Granny Smith, if you will. Mm. Um, it's very, very bright, very acidic, very high. It's, it's absolutely delicious. I'll have to send you a bowl. Yeah, no, that sounds sounds awesome. Yeah, well, send us that one. Yeah, you don't have to drink it now. You don't have to make the decision. We'll just drink it for you. <laughs> um, don't worry, I've got, I'll, I'll, I'll put a bottle aside for you. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. You do do you do any uh like wine tourism, sort of like take folks around, went down to Sussex or something like that to explore, or have so, you done that in the past? Asking for friends, um, Brady. Yeah, I know. I was like, hmm, booking my <laughs> booking a flight. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I do. Um, I try and do one once a month where I visit um as many different producers as I can. If you go onto my Instagram, you'll see a little map that I did. Um, was it last month? No. June, July, it must have been August, I think I did it in. And I did uh, five different wineries and one hotel. And I always post about it and say, this is what I'm doing. Anybody who wants to join me, then, then, you know, they're more than welcome to tag along. So I like to um, keep up with the Joneses in terms of, um, you know, uh, networking. I think that's a, a really big thing that everybody should be doing. So we always visit um, down south or I always uh, connect on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm in your area. This is who I am. Can I come and taste some of your wine? And they'll say yes or no. But a lot of the networking that we have in the UK where it's, yeah, you meet with, um, let's say for argument's sake, it'll be a winery show. And then if, you, if you're bold enough to go to each table and say, what do you do? Where are you? Can I come and visit? 
nine times out of 10, they're going to say yes. So mm-hmm. I've got business cards to the max, and it's just a case of going around and you know, picking out which, which one you can, mm-hmm. when you can when you get time to go down. Awesome. Well, I think that's um, a lot of my questions. I was my main thing is what I personally want to know is what you're what you're excited about in 2023 um, in terms of wines, wine styles, regions that might be emerging or becoming more available. Um, yeah, what, what are you just looking forward to in the year, wine wise? Um, in terms of regions, um, I think some of the lesser known wine regions <clears throat> are taking a big foothold at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be what a lot more people are asking for is, um, I feel like Greece is a big thing at the moment. Um, there's a great writer called Astritico, mm-hmm. which tends yeah. to grow. It can grow all, uh, all over the place. It comes from uh, Mykonos, uh, Santorini. Um, it comes from just outside of Athens as well. So if you think of where um, Athens is, it is quite um, volcanic, quite hilly, a lot of mountains. And there's a lot of ones that go slope off down towards the ocean. So you do get a lot of salinity from it. But the mouthfeel from a, a, a Sritico, especially if it's got one or two bottles age on it, is just delicious. They're really, really gorgeous to drink at the moment. <laughs> um, I think the Croatian wines, Macedonian wines, uh, Balkan wines seem to be a big thing. Mm-hmm. But one of the surprising ones is Sicilian wines, believe it or not. Right. <clears throat> There's one of them that is called the Grillo, which is yep. native to, uh, to Sicily. There's a couple of producers. Um, Seca, uh, Tressa Seca, I think, is the producer. They do a sparkling Grillo, a still Grillo, and the just knocking it out of the park at the moment. So for me, they have a little bit more of a grip and a little bit more mouthfeel because it tends to be a little bit more ripe than the mainland. But Sicily itself it has its completely different, uh, you know, unique um, soil, if you will, and volcanic, uh, you know, the the soil content is a lot different than it is to the mainland for whatever reason. Um, but Grillo seems to be pulling off really, really well. Um, the other one I had was, um, that was a, a Pugli, a Pugli, a um, which was Sangiovese, obviously not from Chianti, Montepulciano, wasn't mm-hmm. anything like that. But because it's more south, it just tasted a little different. It had a little bit more warmth going on. Right. So I think if you look at the, the main wine regions of all over Italy, Spain, uh, mainland Europe or Eastern Europe, and look at the lesser known varietals that do come out of there and just have a little bit more of exploration you're going to find those um the reds or the the whites that you know you may not necessarily have heard of but you, you know becoming quite popular quite quickly i like that yeah especially because i i feel like some of my some friends are big on you know etna biancos or etna rosso like carrot conte is getting a lot of the shine cazzarato kind of is as well but nobody really talks about like the grillos of the world <laughs> Um, so I think that's a, a great point. Um, anything else that you have on the follow up with that? I know Brady's a big Gastirtico fan, so he's probably just nodding along. Yeah, I, got, <laughs> I got to be in Santorini earlier this year and I was blown away because I, you know, I maybe had had one Gastirtico and I, you know, can't recall if it was mainland or out on the islands. And I was blown away by the quality out on the island in, in Santorini. And uh, even some of their blending grapes, uh, um, a theory, one of their blending grapes that they they use out there, and some of their sort to go. I had that uh, as a like a varietal, hundred percent. 
bottling of that. And it was really incredible. I was like, wow, even like, like you said, some of the grapes that are uh, not front and center on the label from those regions are really interesting to have. Yeah, it's nice to to see that. There's a lot of, uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, having these blended wines. Obviously, Bordeaux's, um, you know, super famous for it in terms of that. Um, and a lot of people are using um, other grapes for blending. You know, we're one of them uh, as a country, as a producer. But I'm a big fan of, um, one of the things I did when I first started out in the terms of wine is try and get 100% of whatever that grape variety was. And they can truly understand that as a, as a tasting. So, Tasting 100% Aristico or tasting 100% Cab Franc or, um, you know, whatever else that, you know, springs to mind is if you can get 100% of that grape variety, it does give you a firm understanding of what that grape variety tastes in its entirety rather than as a blended mm -hmm. grape. So, so here's my, you know, here's my ultimatum, so to speak, is try and find that single varietal bottle that will truly express that grape variety and maybe that will you know you'll start to appreciate if you have 100 percent astritico what 100 percent astritico is like rather than that slightly blended one yeah just 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 you know just for argument's sake so to speak yeah yeah it's uh, awesome yeah thanks thanks a lot i think that you know a lot of your recommendations resonate with us and uh in line with a lot of what billy and i talk about often and uh, it's good to have our listeners be able to hear some stuff, uh, some, you know, perspective about wine regions that they might not have, you know, had on their radar. So, and I think your job is really awesome. Billy and I were talking about it. It's uh, <laughs> like a, an aspirational end of the like wine business game to be able to. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, which is great. And thank you very much. But it's like, yeah. it, there's so much more out there. I mean, I don't know everything, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, for argument's sake, we, you brought up Austria, and I don't drink a lot of um, Austria. Obviously, I, I drink a, a couple of the Rieslings and whatnot, but I tend to drink a Mosul Riesling. That's just my favorite region. But it's it's wine is um, if I, my argument would be if you're in the if you're in a room and you know you and you talking talking about wine and you know and if you're I wouldn't say be the smartest person in the room, so to speak, but once everybody's spoken, then you can understand what everybody else is thinking. So for me, a wine is forever and always engaging, forever learning. You know, even Master Soms, they're still learning new stuff, uh, on, you know, an MS, MW, and whatever kind you want to use. Wine is always so self-explorational that only you can truly be the holder of the key by trying all these new different things and just keep learning. And the, the next bottle you open, but, you know, we all have those favorite wines that we always go to the supermarket. I'm, the, I'm a firm believer of it. I'm, I love an unoaked Tempranillo, you know, quite a young one because it's fresh, it's, uh, it's, fresh, it's bright, you know, don't, no over-oakiness on it. That's just my personal opinion. But we always go to the supermarket and go, oh, I love that bottle of Bordeaux. Or I love that bottle of, you know, whatever. Is instead of going, and I say this to all my clients, instead of going to the supermarket and picking up the same thing that you always buy, take three steps to the left and buy that one. And just put your hand in the shelf, pick it up. <laughs> because you're never going to know what that bottle tastes like or what you're going to like or dislike if you don't try more. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. open up every single bottle, taste as much as you can, and just sit along and go for the ride because it's one hell of a journey. Awesome. Thanks so much, Wayne. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on today. Billy, you have anything You're more than welcome, guys. No, that's a perfect way to end it. Thank you. Thank you.
And that was our interview with Wayne Baxendale. I hope everyone had a good new year and we're excited to keep going with the Vint podcast in 2023. Uh, Share with your friends and we look forward to seeing you next time. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular is amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.